It's 8th of September 2021. You're listening to Article Read Aloud podcast from K Productions. On daily basis we read aloud important articles from India's leading dailies. Today we have picked up two articles each from the Indian Express and from the Hindu. The Hindu article is talking about decoding asset monetization and the other article from the Indian Express written by Pradap Banu Mehta is talking about Brahmin welfare schemes instituted by southern states. Let's read aloud these articles for you. First, we are going to read aloud from the Indian Express. The New Brahmanism written by Pradap Banu Mehta. The writer is contributing editor to the Indian Express. Both secularism and social justice have become farcical ideas. If you want to see a new vivid demonstration of this study, the new Brahmin welfare schemes instituted by southern states. The websites of the Telangana Brahmin Samkshima Parishad or Andhra Brahmin .ap.government.in or the Karnataka State Brahmin Development Board have a tale to tell. Each of them has a similar template: scholarships, support for overseas education, funds for starting enterprises, support for Brahmin self-help groups, money for coaching and a range of other benefits. The state ought to help the poor of all communities, but the way in which the proposed schemes are framed is a grotesque perversion of constitutional values. They are a reactionary reversion to the worst aspects of caste. The Andhra Pradesh government has a Vedavyasa scheme for Vedic education. Let us for a moment put aside the question of whether there is secular pedagogical argument for the state supporting Vedic education. but who is eligible for this education students should belong to the brahmin community by birth similarly the parallel schemes in telangana and karnataka require brahmin caste certificate to be eligible for their schemes can you think of anything more grotesque than the idea that in the 21st century the state provides support to a profession whose eligibility is determined by birth if vedic education is an unalloyed good why should it not be open to all subject to contract rules How can the state discriminate and confine it to Brahmins identified by birth? This cannot pass any constitutional smell test. The semiotics get worse. The Brahmin Parishad Telangana dot government in announces proudly that Brahmin stands for broad and brilliant in thinking, righteous and religious in livelihood, adroit and adventurous in personality, honesty and humanity. in quality modesty and morality in character innovation and industry in performance and nobility and novelty in approach got ends the form available for issuing a brahmin caste certificate in telangana asks for gotram details as if the state was some pandit in haridwar there is of course a colossal irony or perhaps deep historical ignorance in the andhra scheme being named after vedavyasa Vedavyasa would not have counted as Brahmin eligible under this scheme. At least the Mahabharata is a bit more emphatic about designating Brahminhood by birth rather than by contact. But there is a modern secular state going with the caste birthright all the way. No one can deny the fact that some Brahmins are impoverished and need help. But why make a scheme available on caste basis? For example, there is a proposed best means brahmin entrepreneurship of telangana scheme which provides entrepreneurial support to those with income of less than rupees 2 lakh worthy goal but presumably article 14 would require that anyone whose income is less than rupees 2 lakh should be eligible for this especially if there is no additional basis for classification based on discrimination 
why allocate funding for IAS coaching, self-help group formation or funding for overseas education based on being a Brahmin? Karnataka state is now giving financial incentives for brides for Brahmins who are apparently finding it difficult to find them. This is a gross perversion of both Vedic and constitutional values. The argument will be that if Dalit can be used as the basis of classification, why not Brahmin? Just this is exactly the perversion of social justice discourse that was set in motion post-Mandal, where the question of deeply entrenched historical discrimination was confused with backwardness and poverty in general. No one can deny the perversive reality of caste in India, but it does not follow that except in the case of Dalits or similar exceptional cases addressing backwardness by the state require using caste as a criteria. Almost all of the goods that are sought to be provided in these schemes to help the poor and backward, preferential admissions, scholarships, income support, housing, education, health, loans can cover all those who need to be covered without invoking caste. But think of the regression this represents in politics. Recognizing caste to overcome discrimination was one thing, but entrenching it as a compulsory identity certified by the state and reproducing birth-based entitlements are a perversion of social justice. Politics and public policies being reduced to jadi-based mobilization in the most absurd way. Dalits were poor on account of their caste, which is why caste was recognized. Now the state wants to ensure that all who are poor are permanently stamped with their caste by an official seal. Do you have income below rupees 2 lakh? Please get a Brahmin certificate to avail benefits. Can't find a bride? Well, if you are Brahmin, we can help. Karnataka, Andhra and Telangana are supposedly India's more progressive states. They do well in public goods provisions and incorporation of Dalits, but it looks as if chief ministers across political parties to see themselves as old Hindu monarchs, lording over a caste order and distributing benefits by caste. There is no emancipatory vision here of overcoming caste. The Lohiate idea that you have to go through caste to overcome it is turning out to be a piece of sociological wishful thinking. But also think of secularism. Ironically, just as subsidies for Hajj pilgrimage were rolled back, you have the massive erosion of secularism. There were anomalies in Indian secularism that need to be corrected, but we should understand this. Those most exercised about pseudo-secularism are not concerned about secularism. They use it as a pretext to stigmatize and target minorities. While the erosion of secularism goes unabated, the free-for-all that is ensuring for reconfigurating caste based on benefits, the demands of local domicile reservation are signs of pessimism about the economy. Much heat will be generated about how to distribute the current and shrinking of jobs and resources along jadi lines but no one is getting seriously upset about the fact that the pea is not growing as fast as we need it to the benefits for brahmins may seem like reduction and absurdum of our politics a little fast but behind it is a great tragedy of a nation with diminishing prospects for everyone encouraging them to reach into the narrowest minded conceptions of identity and calling it social justice the next article, Decoding Asset Monetization, written by Rajiv Lal. Rajiv Lal is Professorial Research Fellow, Simki Bone Institute of Financial Economics, Singapore Management University. The National Monetization Pipeline, NMP, is a bold initiative, but let us first understand what the NMP is and what it is not. 
the NMP is not about the sale of government-owned assets. It is not about privatization or disinvestment. The proposal is to offer infrastructure assets that will continue to be owned by the government under a long-term concession agreement to interested private bidders. Comparison with PPP model. The NMP is also very different from the United Progressive Alliance, UPA first ill-fated public-private partnership, PPP. Infrastructure development of the mid-2000s. That program was about attracting private parties to build, operate and then transfer greenfield or new infrastructure projects under Build, Operate, Transfer, BOT, concession agreements. These enjoined the winning private bidder to take not only the operating risk but also the development and construction risk of the project such as a toll road from scratch. This was a complex and messy process. It involved the acquisition of land. This process became controversial and was subjected to delay. It involved securing environmental and other regulatory approvals. This proved challenging to obtain. It involved meeting construction and design standards. Compliance with these became a source of friction between the concessioning authority and the concessioner. All this undermined trust between the public and private parties and led to huge volume of dispute for which there was no readily available resolution mechanism. In contrast, the NMP is about leasing out brownfield infrastructure assets such as an already operating interstate toll highway under a toll operator transfer TOT concession agreement. In such an agreement, no acquisition of land is involved, nor does the concessioner need to take any of the construction risk. The process promises to be much simpler and cleaner than what was required in the PPP program. It is also certain to attract a different attract a different class of private capital. To be successful in the BOT bids required a proven ability to navigate and manage the system. It thus attracted battle-hardened domestic entrepreneurs adept at finding creative ways of extracting value, including through gold plating of project cost or through negotiated settlements with demanding government inspectors or friendly bankers. On the other hand, for success under the bidding process of the NMP, what will be required is operational experience in running a particular class of infrastructure assets and a strong understanding of the potential cash flow generated over the life of the concession. This is certain to attract the largest global pension funds. Contract design and implementation. That said, the success of the NMP is by no means assured. Bidding out and designing long-term concession for assets that are already operating requires considerable skill. Given the long tenure of these concession agreements, they must be designed to allow for some, for some flexibility so that each party has opportunity to deal with unforeseen circumstances such as climate-related disasters and to prevent needless litigation. Contracts must also incorporate clear key performance indicators expected of the private party and clear benchmarks for asset as they are handed over by the government at the start of the concession. This is key to avoiding disputes about potential additional capital expenditure that might be required to keep the asset operational. Too, no matter how well a contract is crafted, it still needs to be implemented effectively. Experience shows that there is a tendency for government departments to inject opacity into the implementation of concession agreements so that they have more power over the concessionaire. 
To avoid this, it would be useful if the responsibility for administering the concession agreement did not lie directly with the line ministries and all their agencies. 3. It is vital to put in place robust dispute resolution mechanism. For all these reasons, there is a strong case to set up a centralized institution with the skills and responsibility to oversee contract design, bidding and implementation, separate from but with appropriate assistance of the concerned line ministries. An institution such as 3PPP India, first mooted in the 2014 budget, is needed. It would also be advised to set up an infrastructure PPP adjudication tribunal along the lines what was recommended by the Kelkar Committee 2015 to create suitably specialized dispute resolution capacity. Finally, it is always wise to under-promise and over-deliver. The government could start with sectors that offer greatest cash flow predictability and the least regulatory uncertainty before expanding the experiment. It could also ensure that resources raised from the NMP are used to fund new asset creation under the National Infrastructure Pipeline. This will ensure credibility.